Good morning, Hendersonville. It is so good to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, we welcome you to our services as well. Uh, we kind of launched our series the first of the year uh, entitled Move. There are some booklets out in the foyer and the Welcome Center as well as some on the table as you go out the doors to the right as you go out the back. These are uh, books that you can keep sermon notes, journal in, kind of follow along this year as we do this series called Move, first focusing on the life of David. And, and we kind of introduced David the first Sunday of the month, and then Brother Rodney Cloud came or, or joined us by Zoom and uh, dealt with the historicity uh, simply because there are some people in the world who don't even believe David was a true person, really lived, and he kind of addressed that. And then, of course, last week we kind of paused to think about uh, race relationships as we were uh, celebrating as a nation the life of Martin Luther King last Monday. And so we're back on the subject of David this morning, and really today we kind of get into our series. And here's the way it's going to work. We're going to be looking at events in the life of David, specific events that will then lead us to Psalms. In all but next weeks, we will have Psalms that will specifically tell us in the heading what the event was when that Psalm was written. Now, let me just mention why that's important. We sing a lot of songs. I appreciate Blake and his wonderful ability to lead us in worship. Like, thank you. Beautiful songs this morning. But oftentimes we sing songs that we don't know the stories behind the songs. If you knew the story, it would change the way you sang the song, the way you understood the words. You see, most songs are not written in vacuums. Simply are not people sitting down going, you know what, I need to write a hymn, and so I'm just going to sit down and all at once they start writing hymns. No, most of the time they come out of events in people's lives. And the same was true in the Old Testament. David wrote a lot of psalms. And oftentimes they came out of events in his life. And so we're going to look at the events, and then the following week we're going to explore the psalm trying to hear through that psalm how David was processing those events. And what makes this series, I think, so valuable is that God inspired these songs. The Holy Spirit worked through these writers, David being the one that wrote the most of them, in order to say, here's how you process emotions coming out of life's situations. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next uh, two or three months. We begin today with the anointing of David as king over Israel. But to understand it, and we did a little bit of this in our very first lesson, you need to go back and understand the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Something is going on in Israel at this time. Something is going on in the life of Saul. Saul is grieving. I don't think he's grieving so much because God is going to replace Saul as much as he's grieving over the fact that Saul had been such a disappointment. 
The guy who had started out so well. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Here was a guy who looked like a king. He walked into the room, and everybody noticed him. And so when Israel said, we want a king like the other nations, God said to Samuel, you anoint Saul. He's the kind of man... Israel is looking for. But right off the bat, there are red flags that are waving. If you're ever going to, to Florida, Orange Beach, you know, ever going to the Gulf Coast, you know when you see red flags, something is wrong. I hate red flags. Seem like every time I go to Florida, everybody's like, how was the water? And I said, red flags the whole week. You know, which means something is wrong. And there were red flags in the life of Saul right off the bat. I want you to notice one of them that, if you'll just pause for a second, jumps off the text. This is 1 Samuel 10, verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. Can I ask you a question? Why? Why did Saul's heart need changing? And of course, right off the bat, you're, you recognize Saul had a heart trouble. I mean, he had heart trouble. Now, I stand before you as someone who has heart trouble. You know, uh, when they started to put out the list for people, you know, what order you could be vaccinated, there was this group of people that said, if you have two or more of these problems, you can be vaccinated. The good news is I can be vaccinated in that group. The bad news is I have three or four problems, okay? I'm like, wow, I wish I wasn't in this category of people. And my problem is I have heart trouble. Twelve years ago this coming September, I had triple bypass surgery. Uh, I've had stents put in. I take cholesterol medicine. I still remember my cardiologist patting me on the shoulder and said, you know, when I said, how did I get here? He said, you got here the old-fashioned way. You inherited it. And sure enough, my grandfather had uh, heart issues. My uncles all have heart issues. You know, people are like, well, what about your dad? No, dad developed early Alzheimer's. And so I'm thinking, if I had to choose between heart or early Alzheimer's, I think I'll take the heart problem. But still, I inherited it. Saul had heart trouble. And what's interesting is, is that it's not that God gave up on him. One of the things you see right off the bat is, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully among him. It's not that God chose Saul and said, all right, Saul, you're on your own. It's not what he did at all. He gave him the Holy Spirit, like he would David, like he does us. But Saul had to make a decision. Would he allow the Holy Spirit to work in his life? Or would he go his own way? You see, you turn over to Galatians and you got a very fascinating text. It says, we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You see, it's possible, and for many of us, it's oftentimes true, we have the Spirit of God, we just don't walk in step with Him. I, I'm reminded many, many years ago, wow, it was way back in the mid-80s, June and I had gone to Florida. We had taken our, our firstborn son, Robert. And uh, Robert at the time, I don't know, he was maybe three years old. 
And, and we had never gone to Florida very much at all. I think we'd met maybe one time before. And so, you know, we were excited about being at the beach and seeing the ocean and all this stuff. And I love, I still love going to, to the beach. I love walking on the beach in the cool of the evening as the sun is setting. I, to me, it's just one of the most beautiful sights in the whole world. And I remember going out one day, just me and Robert, and we were walking along the beach, and, and I noticed he wasn't beside me, and I turned around to look, and what he was doing is he was walking in my footsteps. Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but, but at three years old, he had a problem going that far. Okay, some of you are thinking, Leslie, as short-legged as you are, I get it. You know, both of my boys are six foot tall. You know, and, and fortunately, June's dad was a tall man, and they got their height from that side of the family. But I looked back, and there was Robert, and he was walking in his dad's footsteps. And, and boy, God just hit me all at once with this idea. Listen, Les, you're setting an example for this boy. He's going to follow you, and you better lead him right. And you know, the same is true when it comes to us and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to help us. But if we don't follow in his footsteps, we're not going to go where he's going. And so Saul, Saul did not follow in the Spirit's footsteps. And, and when you start to read through 1 Samuel, one of the things that's fascinating about 1 Samuel is that it tells the story, of, of course, it begins with Samuel, then it goes to Saul, then it goes to David. Those are your three primary characters in the book of 1 Samuel. And, and what's fascinating about it is that when you get to Saul, it's very obvious right off the bat that what God is doing in the text is saying, compare this king to the king that's coming. Compare the king that you wanted to the king that I wanted. And it's that contrast, if you'll watch for it in the text, that jumps off the page. The problem is most of the time we're doing maybe our year-long Bible reading and we just kind of rush through it. Watch how he develops it. He begins with verse thir uh, excuse me, with chapter 13 and he begins with the fact that the first problem with Saul's heart is that he didn't trust God. He really didn't trust God. This is 1 Samuel 13. We're going to see three stories. Chapter 13, chapter 14, and then chapter 15. All right in a row. And they're there to wave these red flags. Now, in this particular case, let me just give you a very quick history. Israel at this time, their primary uh, enemy is the Philistines. That, that's who they're fighting all the time. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we call part of the Middle East today Palestine. Palestine comes from Philistine. That's where that word originated from, the land of the Philistines or the land of the Palestinians, okay? And so anyway, they're in war with the Philistines, and the way these wars would be fought is that from time to time they would have conflict, they'd get their armies together, they would go in there and fight one another, one would gain some territory, the other side would back off, and then another fight would develop a few months later, and here they'd go at it again. And so one of these fights is taking place. And the Philistines have got their army together, and man, they are, looking, they are looking good this time. I mean, they've got chariots, and they've got horsemen, and they've got soldiers. And Saul's looking at them, and he's thinking, whew, what have I gotten myself into? Now Samuel had told Saul, just hang in there, I'm coming. Okay, just hang in there, I'm coming. Within seven days, I'll be there, we'll offer sacrifice to God, and he'll give us the victory. 
And, and what ends up happening is, as those seven days pass, Samuel hasn't shown up yet. It's the last day, and the men are panicking, and Saul panics. Watch the text. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. There you have it. I'm going to be there in seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. He did. It's just it was the last half of the last day. Okay? And so notice what happened. Samuel didn't come to Gilgal as soon as Saul wanted him to. And Saul's men began to scatter. And so Saul makes his first mistake. Bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now we may read that and go, okay, Saul made a sacrifice. Saul couldn't make sacrifices. He says that's one of the things about the Old Testament. If you're going to make a sacrifice, you have to be from one tribe. It's not the tribe of Benjamin. It's the tribe of Levi. You have to be from one family. That's the family of Aaron. And Samuel was from the family of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was coming to offer a sacrifice. He was coming to bless the troops. God was going to be on their side. But Saul didn't believe in God. And he panics. And the end result was that they lose the battle. More than that, Saul's confidence, as far as Samuel and God was concerned, they lost it as well. The second problem comes in the next chapter where he makes the kingship of Israel about himself. I mean, that's one of the things you see about King Saul right off the bat. Even though God had said, yes, here's the man that you're going to have as king and Samuel, you'll anoint him and I'll give him the Holy Spirit. Saul never saw it about being about God. He saw it about being about himself. And once again, they're in a fight. They're going up against the Philistines. And Saul is really upset now. You know, things have not been going well with him. And so they're fixing to start a battle, and Saul says something you don't do to fighting men. Look at the text up here. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Now, y'all notice in that last phrase there, before I've avenged myself on my enemies, you can't eat anything all day. Now, y'all, I can go all day without eating as long as I'm not doing anything. But if I'm in the yard doing work, you know, if I'm working out in the garden, if I'm, you know, cutting down a tree or something, you better have something to eat pretty soon. And here's these soldiers, and you know what, what it like. I mean, soldiers burn enormous amount of injury, uh, of energy. And here they are, and, and they're fighting, and Saul's done said to them, you're going to be cursed if you eat anything until I'm avenged. Only problem is Jonathan, Saul's oldest son, future king of Israel, if he had been faithful, Jonathan doesn't hear the command. And so he's out there fighting like crazy, comes upon some honey, grabs some of the honey, starts eating it, and the soldier said, whoa, 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 you can't do that. Your dad said there's a curse on anyone who eats before he's avenged. And Jonathan steps back and says, that's just plumb dumb. You can't, you can't fight a battle without eating. And so guess what? Battle didn't go well. 
And so afterwards, they're trying to figure out who's to blame for this. And, and finally, they divide it up, and it's over here on Saul and Jonathan's side. The soldiers are not to blame. None of them ate. And finally, Saul turns to Jonathan and said, Did you eat anything? And he says, Of course I ate something. What you said was crazy. And Saul says about his own son, Kill him. Execute him. He doesn't deserve to live because he violated my command. Read on in the text and all the soldiers there that day who thought the world of Jonathan, they all got between Jonathan and Saul and said, no, you are not executing your son. You see, he thought it was all about him and it wasn't. And then the third one is he disobeyed God's direct command. A story you find in chapter 15 this time. God, God had been upset with the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a group of people that remind me of, of ISIS a few years ago. Y'all remember ISIS, how wicked they were, beheading Christians and everything, teaching it to their youngest of their children? That was the Amalekites. The Amalekites had attacked Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And now 200 years later, they're still a very, very wicked people. And God finally said, enough's enough. I'm tired of these people. Their wickedness is so great, I, I'm going to put an end to it. So he says to Saul, very simply, I want you to take the Israelite army, I want you to go down, and I want you to wipe them out. And I want you to wipe out all of them. I want you to wipe out the men, the women, the children. I want you to wipe out their herds, their flocks, their animals. I don't want anything spared. And so Saul takes off. But if you remember the story, when Samuel saw the troops coming back, Samuel's like, wait a minute. I'm hearing, I'm hearing the lowing of cattle. I'm hearing the bleeding of sheep. I, I see someone in chains. What in the world is going on? And so he goes out to meet Saul and he says, What have you done? And he says, We've done what the Lord said. We've destroyed the Amalekites. He said, Then why do I see all the cattle and sheep here? And why do you have Agag shackled? And he said, Oh, 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 well, well the men made me do that. You see, they, they wanted to sacrifice to your God. That's why we brought all these cattle and sheep. And, and we're going to kill Agag. Don't worry about that. And you get one of the greatest responses. Excuse me, let, let me go back. In all the text where, where Samuel says to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To eat is better than the fat of rams. And he turns to walk away. And when he does, Saul grabs his, his, his robe and tears it. And Samuel says to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. When he said this, everybody knew. And all at once, fear spread throughout Israel. Now we've got a problem. Saul's king. But the prophet has said that God's fixing to pick another king. Whose side are you going to be on? And people are scared to death. They know, they know Saul. Saul's already gotten all about Saul. And so... God finally comes to Samuel and he says, it's time to quit grieving about Saul. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons. And look at verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears about it? He's going to kill me. The great prophet of God, the great judge of Israel, the one who had anointed Saul is now scared to death of him. 
And God says, you take an animal and you go down there and tell them you're sacrificing. But you go and anoint his son. And so he does. He takes off. And look at what happens when he gets to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. What, 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 what are you doing here, Samuel? Have you come in peace? Do you not remember that just a few weeks ago you told Saul that he could be king no more? Have you lost your mind? Why have you come to Bethlehem? And he said, I'm going to make a sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. And so sure enough, they do. Yes, in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, notice the text there, Samuel saw a lob and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, they show up, he sees Jesse's boys line, lining up, he sees the firstborn Eliab, and he thinks, there's the next king of Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things you look at. And then one by one, all of his sons... Eliab, Abinadab, uh, Shemiah, or sometimes called Shema, uh, Nathanael, or Nathanael, Radai, uh, Ozem, and then there's a, a seventh son. We don't even know what his name is in the text. But one by one, they all come in front of Samuel, and God says, no, none of them. And finally, he says, are these all the boys you got? And Jesse says, well, I mean, there's the youngest. I mean, he's out there taking care of the sheep. Get him. We're not sitting down until he gets here. And so they go out and they get this, I don't know, 13, 14-year-old kid. He's out there. He's been taking care of the sheep all day. He, he's not been consecrated in any sense of the word except by God. And he walks in and when he shows up, I mean, he's good appearance. I mean, he's, he works outside. He's a healthy kid. He, he's handsome in his appearance. And the Lord said to, uh, to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the one. And it causes you to pause for a second and ask an important question. Why? What was it about David that was so different than Saul? And the answer is found in two verses. One found much earlier as, as you have that incident with the Amalekites, the other one found in chapter 16. Here's back in chapter 13. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his heart. It's a man that God thinks is worthy, who's like God. And then if you go on to chapter 16, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. It was that heart that had caught God's eye, a heart after God's that was faithful to him. Even though he's 13, 14 years old, God can already see, here is someone who trusts me. Not only faithful, but he was focused on God. Shepherd in the field? Yes. But the whole time, learning how to sing with the lyre and learning how to write psalms of praise to the God of Israel. And obedient? need to take care of the sheep, son. Yes, sir. And in taking care of the sheep, God was training him to take care of the sheep of Israel. It all had to do with heart. You know, 
What makes a great leader? It was Martin Luther King who in his famous I Have a Dream speech said, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. You know, that's probably one of the greatest quotes of Martin Luther King. And yet, if people would just pause for a moment and ask a simple question, where did King get that from? And the answer is simple. He was a Baptist preacher. He got it out of the Bible. He got it from the story of David. I mean, that's where this quote comes from. And it's the same message. It's about what's in here. It's not about the outward appearance, but it's about the character of the heart and the content of that character. Notice Jeremiah 3.15, God says, Then I will give you shepherds after my heart. I mean, who does God want to lead the church? He wants people like David. People who are faithful to him. People who are obedient to him. I mean, people who are concerned about doing what God wants them to do. That's what he's looking for. You know, you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and and you have the qualifications of of elders, of bishops, of overseers. And and you know, growing up in the church, unfortunately, I was oftentimes, you know, we would go through the process of appointing new elders in the church when I was a kid. And always the basic approach was real simple. We're looking for someone who has baptized children and who's been successful in the business world. And, And that was kind of the approach in the church I grew up that it had. As opposed to looking at what Paul says you look for. Look for men who are faithful to their wives. Literally in the Greek, one woman husband. A one woman husband. That's what God's looking for. Someone who's temperate. They're level-headed. They're self-controlled. They're respectable. I want you to notice that word respectable. We're going to come back in a moment. Hospitable. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. God looks for. And that's what his people need. That's what we all need. You know, this last week, one of the things that our new president said that I really, really did like was this. He said, if you're ever working with me and I hear you treating another colleague with disrespect, talking down to someone, I'll fire you on the spot. I love that. I mean, somehow in the process of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, Civility has left the political uh, atmosphere of America. It's gone. And you know what? What's so sad about it is, not only has it left the political atmosphere of America, but it's beginning now to seep into the church. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. It grieves me when I turn on social media and I see people who are members of this church and churches of Christ, even kinfolks of mine, saying things behind keyboards that they would never say in person. Ungodly things. And I think, what's happening to us? I mean, are we allowing the world to turn us into its image instead of us trying to turn the world into the image of Christ? turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, I go back to what President Biden said. Where did he get that from? I mean, did he just come up with the importance of respect? No. All this stuff's in the Bible. Here's what Peter said to all of us as Christians. But in your hearts, that's where it begins. Revere Christ as Lord and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And you do it with gentleness and with respect. 
I'll make a pledge to you. I will do my very best to never treat anyone disrespectfully. Every once in a while, oh, Satan gets the better of me. And I'm going to confess that to you right now. But I'm going to do my best to be a gentle, respectful Christian. And I hope you'll be the same. Because I have found that when we can sit down and treat one another with respect and speak to each other kindly, that most of the time there's not a single problem that we can't work out. You see, at the end of the day, God told Samuel, you want me to tell you what matters? The most important question of our time is not who sits in the Oval Office. Boy, our nation has been arguing over that now for months. It's not who sits in the Oval Office, but who sits on the throne of your heart. That's what matters most, I'm here to tell you. You want to change the world? Change the world by being an example of what Jesus Christ would have us to be. And then telling the world about who he is. That's how we change the world. Again, the opportunity to obey the gospel is always available. Uh, I want you to, to know that. Uh, and, and if ever you would like to obey the gospel, we're here for you. Uh, we, we would love to uh, participate that with you. Uh, just see me, any of the elders afterwards, we'd be happy to. Let's everyone bow if we would. And let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the story of David man after your heart and help us father to listen and, and analyze what he said and father next week as we study the 23rd psalm father help us to hear what the shepherd teaches us and father help us like he to have a heart that's like your heart we pray in jesus name amen let's everyone please stand as we have one more song